Welcome to the Crossroads Psychology video podcast. I'm Vojko Michnia, signing in from Beijing. In this episode, recorded some time ago, we will talk about positive psychology and mental health. I am joined today by Dr. Dan Guerra, a psychologist and psychotherapist based in New York with over 18 years experience in helping clients increase their wellness and mental health. Apart from his private practice, Dr. Guerra is also a mindfulness meditation teacher, an educator, an executive coach, a playback theater actor, an author, and a public speaker. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today here on this podcast. You're very welcome, Boyku. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. And I'm very excited to have this conversation together with you, although you are 12 hours ahead of, of Beijing time. And I think it's amazing that we can connect today like this. It is amazing. And it's a little bit late for you over there. Um, 8 p.m. It's, it's okay. Okay, good. So to begin with, I want to ask you, what is positive psychology to you? And how do you translate that to your clients? No, it's a good question. I, positive psychology to me is really based on the idea that there is really much more right with us than there is wrong. So positive psychology says, you know, let's find out what your strengths are and what's working well for you and enhance and emphasize and refine those things. So positive psychology is facilitative rather than prescriptive. And based on those strengths, then we build on a psychology of, of wellness and helping the client reach their goals. So I suppose in your practice, you focus a lot on building strength. But my question is, why do you think people focus so much on their weaknesses as opposed to their strengths? And when we make them aware that strengths are more important, how can one build upon his or her own strengths to improve their well-being? I think I'm of the belief, Voiku, that many of us are raised with a great deal of criticism combined with uh, living in a society, at least here in America, I'm sure there's other societies like this too, that, that just so values high achievement and pushing to be the best in everything. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with trying to achieve and to, and to do well. But it does, it does begin to create a self that becomes a bit anesthetized or numb mm. to tuning into the experience of, of joy and success and letting happiness and strengths be, be experienced. We're sort of on to the next thing right away. We're more concerned mm. with the self-critical and self-blaming parts as a way for like continuous improvement. So I, I think... I think it's about balance. I'm not suggesting at all that we throw away high achievement or, or trying to drive hard to reach our goals, but we might incorporate in just a tuning in to uh, successes and strengths, for instance. <clears throat> we can build on our strengths first, I think, by identifying and recognizing them in ourselves. We can learn to cultivate them uh, and then leverage them for the situations that we're in. For example, it might take a while, I'm just thinking of an example, for you to know that you can sing. 
Right. right? You might right. you might have had someone tell you that you're really bad at singing, or maybe you were teased uh, about your voice or something. So you begin to speak negatively about yourself for a long time, and you begin begin to develop kind of strong um, belief systems around that. Let's say by accident one day, you might unconsciously be singing in the shower or someone and somebody overhears you and says, hey, you have a great voice, right? So you've got to take that seriously. Mm. And maybe, maybe the next step, you know, maybe you're at a family party and you do a karaoke and you test it out and you develop your talent or your interest, right? Yeah, speaking of which, like uh, karaoke is such a big thing here in Asia, especially in East Asia. And not everyone who picks up the mic can sing, but they do sing. That's wonderful. And, you know, not everybody is a singer, let's face it, too. But, but I just use that as an example of, of uh, you know, just being able to sort of not feel fixed in what mm. we know about ourselves, but instead feel curious to to being uh to changing because i think what we what happens in early adulthood is we think that we've arrived and this is who we are and that there's a straight path but we're really we're really a becoming or we're not uh, a fixed or, or, entity yes or we think that this is who we should be Right, right. We're, we're locked into the parameters of what we've been told by either society or maybe family members or friends, and we can expand, expand that out. So, you know, you can relate this example with the singing to sports, you know, realizing, yeah. thinking that you're not athletic or not skilled in a certain area. And then you, you, you have a different experience. Or you have a different, um, a different example. You start to learn that you're, you're maybe skilled in this area. You can foster that strength mm. or anything. When you know your strengths and you learn how to cultivate and build on it, I think your mood will improve and you can develop a sense of agency, a type of self-mastery. In yes. the world. You also mentioned the self. I think you also deal in your practice with issues of self-esteem. And this is such an important concept to grasp, especially for teenagers and young adults. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Self-esteem, from my point of view, is really just starts with our relationship to self. Hmm. And there is a self, and we have a relationship to that, whether we like it or not. We don't think about that, maybe. And there's, you know, I I distinguish between self with a small s and, and one with a big s. The small mm-hmm. S is our personality and our, our likes and our dislikes and our preferences and the things people have told us about our life. And, and that personality, it's important. You know, it's our day-to-day personhood. And again, it gets back to how we speak and relate to that self. Oftentimes, we're very harsh with, with that self. We speak negatively. We're demeaning. We could be name-calling. And of course, this doesn't apply to, to everybody in, in, in the same degree, but when we're talking about issues of self-esteem, it doesn't take long to usually find kind of a negative or harsh mm-hmm. relationship with self. And we, we speak to that self as if it's someone we don't like. So the root of self-esteem, good self-esteem, is really self-love and self-care. And I think also today with, with the access to social media, our self-esteem is somehow degraded by comparing ourselves with others a hundred percent yeah i mean if if comparison didn't exist before 
the onslaught of social media, which it did, it now really is on high because it only mm. takes the click of a, of a image or, you know, just scrolling across to say, wow, I'm not doing that. I'm not traveling to that great place in the world or I don't look like him or her or, you know, I don't have those kinds of clothes. And, and it's, it's, it's so debilitating. We really have to create a healthy boundary in those areas to really understand that what we're seeing is, is, is in so many ways really a facade, that there's, there's a wellspring of joy and strength and positivity that exists in each and every one of us. But we have to, we have to be willing to go there. Mm. And I really like what you said about loving yourself. Yes. It's, it's so powerful. Self-love is important. It's not really taught. You know, we're taught to do unto others, you know, as you'd like to be done to you. And all of that's very important. Again, I never want to throw that out. But, you know, it really starts with if there is no me and mm. no relationship to me, what am I to you? Exactly. If I'm not filled up, if I'm not caring enough for myself, what, am I, what is it that I'm giving you? It's that old idea about not not so old it's still present but on on when we get back on airplanes you know that when they're doing the safety talk Real. right the oxygen masks come down and and if we think about it you know if there's a mother and a child who does the oxygen mask go on first the answer usually is the child of course but not no. at all yeah. No, the oxygen mask has to go on the, on the mother or father first so that she can have healthy breath to then care for the child. And, and this is a metaphor for how we should be living with ourselves. Yeah. True, true. Speaking of these times, we are living in such uncertain times and being able to deal with your life, with yourself, with everyday stress is so crucial. And I know you've, you've, you did so much work and you're still doing so much work with stress management. Can you tell us a few things of how can people adapt to today's situation from a stress point of view? Sure. Stress management, I think, is really mind and body and brain management. Hmm. And so stress is prevalent, clearly. I mean, we don't have to look far at all globally at this time to, to know that stress is, is here. But even pre-COVID-19, uh, we're dealing with stress levels. And it's a daily part of our lives. It's important to, to mention that not all stress is bad. It's actually exactly. very necessary. Yeah, and it's adaptive. So this idea of getting rid of stress is just nonsense. We, we need it. I mean, it's very adaptive. But unmanaged stress becomes mm. distress. Right. And it's right. it's the source of so many problems, including things, you know, medical problems like heart disease, chronic pain, some autoimmune disorders, headaches. And it can also create tensions in the mind when it's unchecked, anxiety, hmm. panic, an impaired sense of self, depression. So learning to balance out our stress response, that has a healthy correlate in the brain. It prevents hmm that little almond-shaped structure in the midbrain called the amygdala from hijacking our experience of joy and well-being. And you'd be surprised that sometimes when we're overwhelmed with stress, we feel like there's no path back. But it might just take one small breath or one small change in our thought pattern 
or just shutting the computer and lying on our backs for a few moments, and we can reaccess that sense of well-being. This, to me, is extremely exciting. That means it's right at our fingertips. It's right literally under our nose, the breath. And I like it how you, you transition from stress to well-being. Mm, it's, like, right. it's, it's very important also to have a mindset that you're not stuck with this stressful situation, that you can transition to a better yes. life. Absolutely. We have, we have more control than we think. And another th thing worth mentioning about stress is that stress comes from the outside. There's no doubt. Uh, tons of paperwork from your boss. Uh, cold weather, that's stressful. Traffic, you know, demands that are placed on us from the outside. Illness, right? But stress also comes from the inside. So what we want to focus is on, on is managing the things that are in our control. I cannot control traffic. I might be able to control when I leave in the morning, you know, to, to offset traffic. But while I'm in traffic, that's there. But I can control my response to what's happening. Do I go into the usual mode, tensing my shoulders, starting to curse, you know, uh, the traffic gods, you know, all of these things. Or do I just take an opportunity to take deep breaths, to change my thinking about it, to look at the sky? I mean, it sounds a little corny, but into, to the brain and body, it's exactly what we need. True, true. So important. And I think I consider you as an expert in, in this, in, on this topic because you even wrote the book. From Stress to Centered, A Practical Guide to a Healthier and Happier You, which you co-authored with uh, Dana Gionta. So yes. can, you, can you give us some tips on how we can tackle stress? Sure can. And, and just on the, on, thank you for your kind words about expertise. I, I wanted to share my view on that is that um, while I have had a lot of experience in this area, my, my knowledge and understanding really is co-learned co and co-created through my work with people. So I feel very humbled and honored to be learning from the people that I'm working with and also reflecting on just my own experience. I mean, uh, psychologists and healers are going through the same things that our, our clients and patients often are doing. And, and that's worth mentioning, just, just so we... Uh, Keep yes, totally. And maybe that's even more powerful, right? Yes. Because what, what's the best, what, what's a greater teacher than our own experience, right? Our self-experience. But I, I thank you, you know, for bringing the book in. Sure, and we have sure. So can you like give us three tips, actionable tips that we can, I, you know, tomorrow morning when I look at the sky and I see this pollution and okay, I'm going to remember my interview with, with Dr. Guerra. Please. Gotcha. So what, one major tip is to start with simply knowing that, that you have inside the ability to affect and control part of your inner, internal experience, which may feel like it's on autopilot to you. So just bringing your sensibility and your awareness to knowing, hey, I have some control over this. That itself is a stress management tip, okay? The three areas that we look to in order to manage stress is body, breath, and mind. So one example of something that you can do to impact bodily tension and stress, it's a great technique. It's called progressive muscle relaxation, PMR. It's based on the concept that 
An anxious mind cannot live in a relaxed body. If you want to practice progressive muscle relaxation, you can go on YouTube. There's tons of practices on my YouTube channel. It's there in audio uh, file. And also on Insight Timer, a wonderful free app. Um, there's plenty of progressive muscle relaxation practices, and I'm published on there as well. So if you, if you, if you like or dislike the sound of my voice, you can go in either direction. Sure. Uh, second for the breath is ratio breathing. Ratio hmm. breathing is just uh, breathing to a certain uh, count where we, for instance, inhale to a count of four, hold for a count of two, exhale to a count of seven and eight. This expands the exhaled breath, which moves us out of fight or flight into rest and digest mode. It's well-researched, and it's a very easy practice you can, you can do anywhere. Again, you can find that on Insight Timer, on YouTube, anywhere. Thought stopping for the mind. So something actionable is to just notice what your favorite top three to five negative thoughts are. Oh, I'm never going to finish this. Oh, life is terrible. Oh, I feel so overwhelmed. It's never going to change. And just say to yourself, stop. Not now. And if you want extra credit, you replace that thought with something more realistic, neutral to slightly positive. Oh, I love that. Is it really true that everything in my life is out of control? No, not really. Only some things are out of control. Exactly. many things are in my control that's an example so i also think that all these three tips that you have just shared with us have to be applied but there's also a mindset and i think having a growth mindset to be open to the idea that yes i can change yes i am in control is very important what do you think? Can growth mindset help people who find themselves in a rut? Yes, I think, I think growth mindset. And also, I, I like to, if I can add to that mindset, just a mindset that gives ourself, back to the self, a little grace, a, mm. little, a little space. Again, not to remove ourselves from hard driving self-achievement. But one of the ways that we foster good outcomes is to give, give ourselves a little room for error, a little room for not getting everything perfect. I have to be very careful in, in, in teaching this. And by the way, I'm type AA++. I, if I was unchecked, I'd be driving myself uh, to the end of life. So I, I practice what I preach in this area. So for instance, I would much rather folks practice a little bit regularly over mm -hmm. the course of their day and to do two hours of intense stress management work when they're feeling like things are falling apart. And so, yes, a growth mindset and a mindset that includes that there can be usefulness and joy in, in giving ourselves a little bit of room and actually reaching the same outcome. Right. I think it's very important to understand that we are not always on, on this amazing race, right? And that we can actually slow down and you know, look left and right. And as you said, I like that. Give, give yourself some grace. That's just amazing. We're yeah. always like achieve, achieve, achieve. Do, 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 do. More, more, more. 
When we operate on a constant mode of doing, like you're suggesting, it's, it's the classic way to miss life. It's the classic way to wake up 10 years from now and go, where did the time go? Hmm. I don't believe that time goes fast. Time goes exactly as it goes. But our experience of time can slow down hmm. when we, as you said, look left and right, stop and smell the roses. Not all the time, but in moments. And this, what we're talking about today, are these moments. True, true, so true. In your practice, you also deal with grief and you will also address emotional suffering. Like these are such heavy, heavy subjects. How do you approach these issues? Yeah, there's so much of this right now, Voiku, uh, I, I can't even begin to tell you uh, what's happening. I'm sure around the world, but particularly in, in New York, where I'm, where I'm living. Yes. Um, everything from first responders to <clears throat> my, my clients who are not first responders. When you're dealing with grief and emotional suffering, really the hallmark of this is cultivating an atmosphere, an atmosphere of being with the other person. Hmm. You, you cannot rush grief, move it along. Uh, you can only observe again, create an atmosphere of care and empathy and, and, and sort of walk alongside them to be with them. Uh, not everybody grieves in the same way. Un unlike what we sometimes think in popular psychology, there's these stages that we move through. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross yes. was, was awesome in her stages, but she even was very clear to say that they're nonlinear. One cycles back and forth depending on who we are personally. Um, with that said, you know, there's a time to help people uh, move out of the stage of grief when they're ready or emotional suffering to actionable steps. Mm. Um, but when they're in it, when, when it's just present, the best mode is, is empathy, empathy, being with, not, not sympathy. Yes, empathy. empathy. Such, a, such an important word. And I think we kind of forget that. Empathy is such an important, I almost want to say like a skill. It's a, absolutely a skill, yeah, a hallmark of emotional intelligence. Right, right. You also have a very unique way of promoting wellness by combining Western and Eastern approaches. Can you give us more details? Sure. I mean, this is a real favorite topic of mine. So even before I entered higher education for psychology, I, I had a real interest and passion for Eastern philosophy and mind-body practices. I think this came out of my, uh, my joy and passion for world travel. When I was around 20, I began to travel the world. I had an experience of uh, studying um, across the pond in England there and just got to travel. And I saw that different cultures had different approaches to wellness and mental health. And, you know, I got out of that mindset as like, you know, Western science uh, is, is, the, is the answer to everything. It's great and it's amazing. But again, there, there are some uh, native cultures and some, you know, some old wisdom that's, that's entrenched in these different approaches. And I just was fascinated by this. So at that same time, you know, yoga and meditation were re-entering the psyches of America and uh, of Americans after lying dormant, you know, with the 60s and 70s and that movement. And I, I had the incredible opportunity to study the deeper dimensions 
of mm. yoga. I'm not just talking about body classes, you know, make the body look good, but the deeper dimension. With a highly trained teacher and yogini named Garani Anjali, who is from Calcutta. And I started to see the impact that those practices had on my own mind, body, brain. And I wanted to integrate this with my training in psychology and, and share it with others. After grad school, I did another trip uh, around the world just with my backpack and, and went even further into, you know, Asia and some of those places and just really strengthened uh, those practices and learning. And I had the opportunity to teach uh, yoga in many countries around the world. It was great. Since you mentioned yoga, what are some of the benefits? Maybe it's kind of obvious. Everyone says yoga is so important, it's so good for you. But I'm not sure people actually know what the benefits of yoga are beyond that, like, okay, you look good and you're flexible. Yes, exactly. I have, I'm going to just announce I have a real bias in this area. Uh, because especially in the West, we've we've taken a very very old, ancient, sacred, deep practice, and you know, no offense to anybody out there, but mm. we've we've made it, you know, just one more thing that we do for fitness. Yes. And again, yes. it's not untrue. It's it, it it's fitness. It it's helps the body, but it's a side effect. It's a positive side effect. The real yoga, in my opinion, where it all began, is, is hatha yoga. And, and there'll be people who disagree with me, so you can expect that. But Hatha Yoga, in my opinion, is is really less about uh, focusing on sculpting the body or seeing if you could twist yourself a little bit more into a pretzel or really, you know, get that hard yoga position. In my opinion, this is not how this is not where we we learned yoga. It's really more about learning to harness the mind. All mm. of the body positions in yoga, asanas we call them, were developed to quiet the mind, right? And you quiet the mind through relaxing and strengthening the body. And so that's the positive side effect. So hatha yoga is, is technically comprised of six limbs, but the deeper dimension of yoga have really eight limbs. And if, if mm. I may, I'll... I'll Describe them briefly. So sure, you have, sure. You have, you have yamas, which are abstentions. These are practices that that we um, engage in, that we withhold uh, from because they're helpful, like non-stealing or non-aggression. And niyamas, which are observances, you know, cleaning the body and practicing self-care as as examples. Those are two two limbs. Th- these are these line up a little bit with other uh, faith-based. Mm. Um, ideas like commandments, let's say, or, you know, uh, the ways we practice in humanity. The next limb is pratyahara, which is withdrawal of the senses. And withdrawing the senses is important because the senses are out there 24-7, touching, feeling, tasting, seeing, hearing. And that's wonderful, but there's a time to reel those in and be more reflective. Fourth limb, asana, that's the Mm. body pose. Fifth is dharna or concentration. Most people, when they're going, uh, or many people, I should say, when they're going to to meditate, what they're really starting to practice in the beginning is concentration, trying to have one-pointed awareness and focus on one thing at one time. Then there's dhyana, which is meditation. And finally, samadhi, loosely translated into enlightenment. Mm. It's an amazing practice and... As you mentioned, 
do you just sit down and, okay, I'm going to do two hours of yoga? Or do you live through moments? So should I put aside a two-hour practice every day or should I spread it around the day? Yeah, it's a great great question. I can say quite honestly, uh, in all transparency, when I was in a younger mind and body <laughs> in my 20s and I had that that sort of uh, drive that was that was exactly. untamed yeah I was I was doing two or three hours of yoga a day and I was you know traveling and I, you know I was in the learning mode you know I, I I was it fit my personality and the way that I take on things if anybody that knows me you know I I, I bring my full self to something and then I can kind of ease off once I, I learn it everybody's different you know, you might have somebody in a younger mind and body who's a little bit kinder and has more grace with oneself and will take it in bits and chunks. And also everybody has different life circumstances. So my recommendation is this, is that um, there's, there's formal yoga or formal meditation and there's informal yoga and informal meditation. I believe that in the beginning when we're learning something new, we need a little bit of formal training. So you got to sit here. You got to sit your butt on a cushion to practice meditation, you know, and time yourself and learn from teachers. Same thing with yoga. Have a teacher, you know. It's much much better when we can to be in person with a experienced teacher to learn the deeper aspects of yoga and even asana and body postures. Then after a while, you start to integrate and learn the informal approaches of meditation and yoga. I I do practice uh, both formal and informal. Informal meditation, example of that would be to uh, keep attentive to your breath and to your own emotions while you're in a conflictual situation mm. with a person. Uh, practicing yoga on the subway or while yes. commuting to work, it, it takes place by noticing your tension in your body and releasing it with your breath. Or when I was riding the subway, I mean, people are hesitant to do that these days, but when um, I'm on the train, I might notice how, how are my feet? You know, am I standing uh, with a, a straight body posture or am I slumped or am I holding mm. on to tension? So I, I think there's lots of room to practice and feel good about that. That is just, just great, great advice. So you are also an advocate of mindfulness-based approach to wellness. It seems that people these days are becoming more and more aware of the benefits of mindfulness. In your opinion, what is the importance of mindfulness these days? Mindfulness-based approaches are, are, very, are very powerful. And I think the reason for that is because it involves many of the concepts and things that we've been talking about up until now. Um, it's an age old practice dating back for through the millennia. And I had the uh, f- good fortune of when I was kind of coming up in graduate school, uh, that there was a lot of good published research in this area, driven a lot by uh, Center for Mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts with John Kabat-Zinn, who was a American microbiologist, but he was also a practicing uh, Buddhist. So he he had that Eastern wisdom and training in meditation, but wanted 
to find a way to make it very accessible to regular folks mm. like you and I. So mindfulness uh, and mindfulness-based approaches are really about learning how to cultivate and harness one's attention. Mm. And we are in a, in a world and in a time period more than ever where attention and focus is very scattered. It's everywhere. Everywhere, all over the place. And you don't have to have a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity and, and these kinds of things to relate to the idea that we, we've become somehow a, a culture that's trying to do many things at once. And we're, we're doing all of those things at 40% effectiveness. And the, the art of focusing on one thing at one time, and in this case, particularly our own inner experience, it, it's been lost. And when we return to that, we recognize that there are a ton of benefits, including mm. being able to manage stress responses, increase our concentration and focus, um, have better outcomes in relationships, improve our physical and mental health, have better outcomes in business, um, benefit from greater leadership. It really involves uh, emotional intel intelligence, those aspects of emotional intelligence that involve self-awareness. What is it that's going on inside of me in my mm. thinking and feeling? And then self-regulation, being able to modulate and for me to be in the driver's seat, not in the passenger seat of those thinking, those thoughts and feelings. And then also being aware enough to know socially what's happening around me so that I can sense what's happening in you and respond appropriately. So that I can be aware of, is this person trying to harm me or help me mm -hmm. or somewhere in between? How much of it is, is you? How much of it is me or us? Those kinds of skills all helped and cultivated with mindfulness. And I think these days it's mindfulness is, is more available to everyone. There are so many apps one can use. There's a plethora of information. So if I were to start today mindfulness practice, where can I start? Well, it's, it, it happens... Uh, in the same way as some of these other practices, to just find a good teacher. And there's plenty of them out there. There may be some that are not so good. So using your mind to discern mm -hmm. what is and what isn't. And no, no, there is no better teacher than self-experience. So you will start the practice of mindfulness by beginning to trust your own inner experience about the relationship you have with the sure. teacher whether that teacher is on Zoom or uh, you know YouTube or in person, wherever possible, I always believe in person is better. But we're we're living in strange times, and yeah, just start start by by doing a little bit of reading, a little bit of searching out, uh, understanding. I love uh, John Kabat-Zinn's books; they're accessible to the everyday person. Um, one great place to start is wherever you go, there you are. Fantastic book with three-page chapters that you can kind of skip around in, and you can start to begin to uh, understand where mindful approaches are. And then 
and then uh, after that, you have to sit, sit and 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 do the practice. And practice. again, there's so many exactly. different types of so many different types of teaching out there. I, I have my own form that's more related to mindful uh, mm. mindful based stress awareness. Uh, but there's so many types of uh, mindfulness trainings out there. Earlier on today, you mentioned the mind body connection, and I think you see a connection between mind-body and physical illness. H how so? There, there was a time, I believe, when humans were very much interested in their higher order thinking and rationality. Uh, the age of uh, rationalism. Yeah, enlightenment. And I think we got stuck there. A bit so that that age was very important but it got uh, we got so obsessed with it to the point of ignoring the wisdom of our body and our emotions so it's that old Cartesian adage of I think therefore I am so I would revise that today to say I think I feel I sense I listen therefore mm. I am <laughs> you know we, we've understood that all these things are equally important so it's got a off track a bit with respect to our own body awareness and mm -hmm. well-being. So the mind and body are so intricately related that I think it's more useful to characterize our experience as mind, body, brain, almost like one word to capture it. Maybe we'll come up with an, a new word to capture mm -hmm. that. So one impacts the other so greatly. Here's some examples. Heart attack patients do so much better in the ER when the emergency medical team puts a hand on their shoulder and, and reassures them. The use of guided imagery can offset the negative experiences of chemotherapy, for instance, in cancer patients, and also make use of the brain's power to boost one's own immune system just through noticing and awareness. Another example is an unconscious tensing of muscles in the chronic pain patient. And the anxiety of living with a condition like chronic pain, will it ever go away? Is my life always going to be debilitated? You know, all of that contributes to the pain itself. It might not have caused the pain. But it amplifies but it it. Yes. And increases inflammation in the body, that tension. Why, why does inflammation get increased? Many, many reasons. Diet, uh, the pain itself, but also through our autonomic nervous system. When you're chronically stressed and you're activating the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, fight or flight, on and on and on, you have certain uh, neurotransmitters and hormones being secreted like cortisol and adrenaline. And in short term, these are so adaptive and important, but over the long term, they work against us. They inflame the body. One example that's that you might find interesting too is one of my first patients when I was a very young graduate student, had chronic headaches for years and years, couldn't get rid of them, uh, even went to the point of thinking about surgery, there was medicines, you know, she was on all kinds of medicines. Finally, the, the doctors got so fed up, they said, go see, a, go see a psychologist, this must be, you know, something that's psychologically related. Well, in a sense, they were right. It was unfortunate that the way they delivered it because it felt like she was to blame, which she wasn't. But when we looked into her life, we realized that when she had headaches, that was the one time in her life 
where the family started to show her attention and love and okay. care. Just happened to be that way in her family. She was responsible for everything. Everything. She worked full time, cooking, cleaning. You know, the husband expected dinner on the table. Just happened to be that way. But when she had a headache, somehow everybody chilled out and started to turn their attention to her. So hmm. she was in an incredible dilemma. I give up my headaches. Now this isn't conscious, right? But I, I release, give up my headaches, and I lose this very, very important emotional need in my life. Or I keep these headaches, which I can't stand. I mean, it's really debilitating, but at least I get some. So we had to work with her assertiveness and asking for emotional needs and changing the structure of the family. So I, I give that example only to say it's a very complex system that we have. Hmm. And that, that secondary gain from physical problems uh, relates to why the mind and body are so intricately related. So true, so true. Let's switch a bit gears here, but actually I don't think we're switching gears. You also have an interest in theater and how theater can be used as a cathartic experience. First of all, where is the passion coming from for theater? And again, yeah. how, how do you actually implement this in your practice? I, I thank you for asking about this. It's such a, it's such a joy. I don't always get to talk about it. Um, this might be a little bit unique to, to my personal path, although it, it is out there to be discovered if other people want to figure out the correlates between psychology and theater. So mm -hmm. the way it's happened for me is that ever since I was a, a, a young boy, I've always had a passion and interest in the dramatic arts. I think I suppressed it in service of doing something serious with my life and being more scientific and, and headed toward that path. For whatever reason, I, I had that in my head that I, I you know, I, I want to stay away from that, even though between you and me, I had a real love and passion for that. So that that was a dormant for, for a while until I got into uh, late university and grad school where I started to audition for uh, theater and I was getting parts and I really loved it and I started to see some overlap between psychology and theater. Number one, I mean character development and personalities are rife and rich inside theater, right? Mm. And uh, plots and, and those sorts of things. We just need to look to Shakespeare as one example to see uh, you know, how many uh, psychology moments we have there. Um, but what happened over time is I started to become aware of things like uh, drama therapy from J.J. Uh, Moreno. I didn't really do a deep study in that, but it was in my awareness. And then somewhere about 10 or 11 years ago, I had been doing little bits of theater here and there, did some voiceover work, but I opened up Backstage Magazine, which is a magazine uh, for actors to see what auditions are going on in the city. And there was this advertisement for playback theater performance. I had never heard of playback theater. Um, well, I went for the audition and I've now been a member for 10 years and we perform. Wow. We perform in different parts of the world actually, but mostly in New York City area. And playback theater is a form of theater that plays back the audience member's story or experience. So it's interactive theater. Usually you go to a theater, you sit passively, you watch the performers, you clap at the end. <laughs> but in playback theater, you have a conductor or an MC that interacts with the audience 
and it's usually weaved around a social justice theme. That social justice theme could be around mental health awareness, could be racism, could be violence mm. against uh, women or, or uh, LGBT communities, any of those things. And we get, we, we cultivate stories in the audience and the actors will play those stories back through improvisation. No rehearsals, no script, um, just listening and performing. So we're trained in improv, we're trained in listening, empathy, validation, and we have a musician too, world-class musician from Russia, who is also an improv performer, and he improvs mm. the music. And sometimes we'll sing the story, or we'll act it out, and, and that's how the passion got into practice. And right. it is related to psychology. Yes, yes, totally, totally. It's, it's, it's amazing how the arts, music, uh, painting can play such a big role in therapy. Yes, absolutely. There's that as well, too. That playback theater is only one form of this, clearly. There's so many other forms mm. where, uh, as you mentioned, that um, relate so much because it, it, it relates to our emotions, our, our passions, our, our inner self. Self with a big S, if you will. Yes, yes. I think I kind of see a trend in this discussion. And as we approach the end of our, of our interview, I think we mentioned some very important words here, self empathy, mind, body, meditation, breathing, which I think are very important concepts that we don't have to master today, but we can start thinking about them and putting them into practice little by little, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Right. As, as you know, I'm also a psychology teacher at an international school here in Beijing. So I want to show this video to my students. What advice do you have for young people thinking into going in psychology and how can psychology help them in their future careers? Not necessarily as a psychology teacher or as a, as a psychologist. Yes, we could do a whole talk on, on this, but I'll suffice it to say that I want to start by just saying that psychology is so broad. It's so broad. This will create anxiety for some people because we want to know a, a specific path but for others it will create possibility i recommend it create possibility for those that are interested so much you can do research you can help people hopefully like i am and with mental illness there's writing there's teaching um, you can move psychology into business this is another hat that i sometimes wear with executive coaching and helping people develop their leadership capabilities advertising yes marketing marketing human resources if you think about it psychology exists in almost everything because people exist in almost everything and uh, you know to have Ooh. those kinds of people skills are so are so important important then there's all of the branches and side brands of psychology like neuropsychology biopsychology social psych evolutionary psychology animal psychology, personality development, child psych. So lots of lots of uh, opportunities. One also, uh, another way that getting into the field can help if you're interested in, and aware enough is that you can start to use these concepts to know yourself and to practice your own mental health. Um, it's, it's not a surprise or 
it's not a secret that many therapists who have gone into the field have had some trauma themselves, some difficulties mm. in their early childhood. There's, there's, as you've alluded to before, there's nothing wrong with that if we're willing to be aware of it and to learn and leverage mm. it to help sure. others. Where it becomes a problem is if you think you're going to override your past uh, difficulties by by sort of learning something, becoming super expert at it, and then impart the wisdom down to others. That's why I, I've mentioned before that while I appreciate you recognizing my expertise, it's, it's really a co-creation, you know, and, and a mm. humbleness in learning that um, on this spectrum of difficulties that we all have, we are on that spectrum, whether you're a healer True. or a very accomplished person. This is good news. This is good news because we can, we can learn and grow. Um, so my advice to your students is to really delve into your passion and let that lead you. You want to be going down a path that you believe um, is connected to your, your joy and something that you feel really good about. Not only necessarily what's popular or expected of you, what everyone else is doing, I mean, there might be some elements to that. We have to think about practical things. You know, can I get work? Can I make a living? True. But really, I believe wholeheartedly, and I've, I practice this myself, and it's come to pass, that when you follow your passion and your drive and what you love and are excited about, everything else follows, and you have good mental health. This is a beautiful message, and I'm sure it will connect with, with my students. Lastly, I see a bookshelf behind you over there, <laughs> Can you give me one title of a book in positive psychology, if possible, because I am on a mission of making positive psychology as part of my life, and awesome. I'm trying to understand how positive psychology can be implemented in everything that I do, from, from daily life to business to sports. So what is one book that you recommend for me to read, for our listeners, for our readers? Okay, I'm happy to recommend it. And the authors is one where I've struggled, as many do, with the name for so long. You may not have, you may not struggle with the name based on where you're from. You, well, let's see. The book is Flow, and uh, I, the author is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Flow is an excellent book, one of my favorites. Really teaching us how to drop in and cultivate um, that that practice of learning how to be present and learning how to be in flow as and, and in the zone as we mm. um, reach our successes and our goals. And, it op and, and learning how to operate in unity with an integration with mind, body, and brain. Love that Beautiful, book. beautiful. Thank <laughs> you so much for your recommendation. It's wonderful. And, and uh, Voiku, thank you so much for having me. I wish you the best with the podcast. And it was a real pleasure to be here uh, with you. I'd like, to, I'd like to visit your class one day. It can be done in the future. <laughs> I think right now we're all uh, you know, bunking in for, uh, for this situation that we're all in. That's true. But I'm thinking positively. Yes, I would really love to keep in touch with you. And one day we will, we will meet. Thank you so much once again.